Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Forest Spirituality with me, Julie Brett. Today I've got an interview for you and I'll get right into it because it's quite a long one. Enjoy. So I've got with me today Gordon Cooper, who is a former Grand Arch Druid of the the Ancient Order of Druids of America, the AODA. And he's coming from Seattle today and having a chat with me. And we're going to be talking about Druidry and um, yeah, let's, let's just see where it goes. I'd, I'd really like to, to hear more about how you got into Druidry sure. and what's important to you in it and wow. how you're doing yourself now. Um, that actually began at Fall Equinox 1976. Uh, I joined the U.S. Navy right after high school. I was, after boot camp, I was assigned to the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California, where I studied Turkish for eight hours a day, two hours a night of homework for one year. And the first evening I got there, when I checked in, uh, there were a group of people in the hall across in the room from the one I was in, uh, they were hunched over a board playing an early version of Dungeons and Dragons, which I got into rather quickly. And it turned out that every single person in that group was either in a coven, had been in a coven, or was getting into a coven. Um, <clears throat> and because truthfully, they were the sanest people there in language school, one of them uh, became my roommate, my good friend, uh, Ashley Mitchell, who is still a good friend and is over uh, on the east side of Seattle, well, further than Seattle, but on the east. Um, and Ashley, who was one of the signatories to the Covenant of the Goddess founding document, said, yes, I'm a witch. We actually know of Druids in the community. Uh, Gwydion Pindarwin being the most famous one at that time. And I said, well, what's the difference? And Ash took a deep breath and said, well, that's complicated. Um, I, I was stationed overseas um, in Spain, southern end, on um, the Atlantic coast for two and a half years. And as I started studying magic, one of the things I kept running into was how different the climate I lived in, in Spain, was from what all the books said was normal. Now, aside from meditation, I wasn't practicing magic at that time. But once I got initiated in 81, when I was out of the service, I was living in El Paso. And when I was facilitating Desert Star Coven, the problem we ran into instantly because all but myself and one other person were local, is they'd never seen any of the plants in any of the standard books or the herbs, except in a botanical garden or in a picture somewhere. And I thought, oh my, this is a problem. And I was reading the Georgian newsletter, and a number of Australians who were correspondents at that time and they had been since 73, they were grappling with the problem of how you made any sense of the Wheel of the Year in Australia. And the conclusion that they were coming to was you couldn't. 
in any conventional way. And as you might imagine, this caused a great deal of consternation. Um, and it was one that, that I could identify with because in El Paso, the water isn't around you, it's under you. It's seven to nine inches a year of rain. There aren't any oceans for days in any direction. And the water is all from the Hueco Bolson Aquifer. Um, so nothing worked in the usual sense. Uh, and I thought about this a lot. <clears throat> and about this time in, in 1983, I was an anthropology major. Um, my other major is Turkish language and my minors in natural sciences. <clears throat> um, one person in Georgian said, look, we can solve all these difficulties around the words Wiccan, witch, whatever, by just using the word grandma used, shaman. If we just call ourselves shamans, we settle all the problems. And I thought, this doesn't feel quite right. I just picked up a copy of Way of the Shaman by Michael Harner. It was then in paperback. <clears throat> I was on my way to one of my classes in ethnography by my professor, David Ide, and he saw me carrying the book and he stopped me and he said, Gordon, can I look at that? And I said, sure. He said, my God, is this Mikey? And I said, what? Is this Mikey, Mikey Harner? He was my student. Is he still doing this thing with congas and bongo drums in his apartment? Does it work better now than it did then? And, and so sort of trying to not choke in public in the hallway, uh, Dr. Ide and I had a long number of discussions on shamanism and Harner's method and the like. So with this in mind, I wrote an article in the Georgian on why craft, whether we're talking about Wicca, which is a term that wasn't yet really big, uh, why, why craft or non-trad witchcraft was simply not shamanism. Uh, so I, I wrote this moderately long piece and there was pushback. And then I got a fan letter, the very first fan letter of my life from a young Georgian priestess and magician named Brandy Williams. And she made a lot of points and asked me a lot of questions and said, yes, we're not shamans. We weren't raised this way. We weren't rocked in the cradle with the songs. We're not integral to the environment. Um, and so I, I, I sort of had these questions in the back of my mind for years around what would be appropriate, what would not steal from people. Two years after college, I found myself in Los Angeles as the general manager of the Whole Life Monthly, which was the largest new age seminar company in the world at the time. And I watched with a sense of growing horror around the appropriation that was happening. While well, all this time um, participating in two different magical groups, um, having a, a good friend and, and mentor who is arguably probably the best expert on Irish mythic materials and its relation to anything pre-Christian in the country. Um, and I watched British books on Tantra from the 1890s being rewritten 
as Native American systems of sex magic. I mean, they, they were simply like writing out the, the names and pasting in a pseudo Native American term and producing accompanying porn videos. And it was in this time frame that a woman who had never gotten closer to Native American materials than possibly an art gallery claimed she'd been mushing through the woods with this mythical group of women in the Arctic. When all of us who worked at this place knew that she'd not done any of these things. And at, at that point, I, thought, I just, I can't do this. I can't take money. I can't take a salary from something that's going to promote this woman. So I quit um, and mailed the various tribes she claimed to be affiliated with her schedule for the fall. Um, I moved up to Seattle about two years later, and I encountered a world that was very different from El Paso. Um, like El Paso, it's volcanic. Like El Paso, it has only been Western for the last 150 years or so. Uh, El Paso sits at a crossroads of the uh, the high civilizations of Mexico and the desert southwest cultures of Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, and Colorado. Um, it's a transitional. Sorry, sorry, El Paso is in Texas. The sorry, I thought you were talking El, about Spain. El Paso is on the border of Texas, New Mexico, and Mexico at the Chihuahua Desert. Um, while I was in college, I was invited to participate for a number of years as part of an indigenous native group from Mexico. Um, and they made it very clear that, that they did not want the material appropriated and, you know, disseminated. I, I experienced great kindness and compassion and an awful lot of learning from these people. Um, they invited me to a Tomas Kali, that's a hothouse. Um, on the Day of the Dead in 83, as well as a conferencia, which is more or less a powwow. And these were magnificent learning experiences in so many ways. Um, so when I got when I got to Seattle, which is where Brandy had Williams had moved by this time, we were able in person to renew our long form discussion on appropriation. Uh, and at this point, I got much more deeply into the mythic material, specifically of the Irish, um, you know, the, the insular Celtic materials, uh, sea, earth, and sky. Uh, I developed artistic and meditative materials for working with that paradigm that, that turned into what is now a large chunk of Celtic Reconstructionism. And in 1999, Philip Cargon invited me to Obod camp, and I was completely stunned by what they were doing with their materials. They had gone so much farther with art and living it. I mean, there are people doing canoe portages as long-form meditations. They were writing, they were doing poetry, they were building dragon walls you know, in, in ceramic, um, people were, were showing up with these massive notebooks at the Lunasaw camp, 
And, and we had nothing like that in the US. We still don't. And I thought, I've got to figure out how they're doing this. And <clears throat> many hundreds and thousands of cups of tea later, um, and, and going through a lot of the early materials, I mean, the universal bond notes from the 1940s, um, Ross Nichols' writings in the Occult Observer, as well as his various other books, um, I, I, I hit upon that what we, what is now called the standard wheel of the year was simply an excuse for four more parties in the year. It was so the London Coven and Newman's group, the Universal Bond, which of course Gerald was a member of, could get together for eight parties. And uh, some years ago, I had a chance to ask two members of the London Coven, so tell me the ritual cycle. There wasn't one. I said, what? There was no ritual cycle. It was eight parties. It doesn't work. It's a ritual cycle. We never could get it to work. It was never intended to be um, a resurrected and slain god bit and this, that, and the other. That was an accretion, as far as I can tell, that, that seems to have started happening somewhere in the late 60s, um, largely, but probably not entirely in the US. Um, and so I went back and I read Ross's earlier materials, where originally his Wheel of the Year were the Knights of the Round Table, one of them in each astrological house, who moved around Arthur, who was the bear, the North Star. Um, he also wrote about this in the Occult Observer in about 1950 or 51. Um, you'll find his original layout for the Wheel of the Year and the Cosmic Shape, which he wrote with James Kirkup in 1946. And so I looked at this <clears throat> in about the year 2002 and said, there's something here I want to follow because if we, are, if we can separate out the local seasonal festivals, which he talks about, from the purely astronomical phenomenon, um, we can possibly look towards a more localized wheel or, or system. And after many more thousands of cups of tea and discussions with Philip and Stephanie Cardom, uh, Penny and Arthur Billington, uh, Claire Prout, and so many other people, um, I realized that Ross had, had rooted his druidry in very local ideas and manifestations initially. Um, and I thought, it's time to look at this. And so in 2004, I wrote an article um, for uh, the OVOD website on wildcrafting your own druidry. Uh, that was 04. <clears throat> and to be honest, I put it to one side for a number of years because I thought no one's ever going to be interested in this. Um, and because I was refreshing my knowledge of natural sciences. I started reading a lot of geology and exobiology um, and baseline biology. <clears throat> and a few years ago, um, I got contacted by Larissa White, who said, hey, this wildcrafting your own druidry is great. We're working with it, and these people are working with it, and these people are working with it. And I said, well, hell, I better go back and see what I wrote. Um, and work on a methodology. So what I am working towards 
is a method, not a system, of starting at ground zero where you are, making no assumptions. Um, <clears throat> what is our weather? What is our climate? What are the rocks that are here? Um, what are the actual patterns of animals? When does dawn happen? When do we hear the when do we hear the birds start to wake up? Um, what's going on with you know rain and our annual here we have an annual forest fire cycle, especially now, and that obviously should figure into our ritual calendar. Um, we have the most complex tides in the world here because of the way the sound is configured. So there, there are all these local bits that simply don't factor in to the way that, if you will, the standard wheel of the years looked at. We have an almost non-existent autumn, for example. Our, our autumn is like that and it's over. Our spring is really in two phases. Um, <clears throat> we don't have agriculture. Agriculture has only been up here since the 1880s. The, uh, the peninsula and the Northwest were traditionally all about gathering. They weren't even about hunting. Between the 120 pound salmon that you could pull out of the rivers and gathering berries and clams um, and seaweed and berries, there simply was never a development of agriculture. So it's, it's a very different bit. And of course, still keeping in mind that I don't think it's either ethical or useful to appropriate motifs, myths, and certainly spirits from the local culture. Um, again, we kind of went to ground zero on, on what there was. Uh, the tribes, by the way, here have said, don't take our religion and don't ask about it. It's the only thing we have left. The first act in establishing the territory of Washington involved burning the ritual longhouse. And the tribes here have not forgotten that. Um, it's only since 1973 or four that the ritual gift exchanges, the potlatches have even been legal in Canada. And, and the tribes were only 120 miles south of the Canadian border. Uh, and the tribes here have lots of members who remember when it was illegal to go up and visit their relatives and do their traditional ceremonies. The Native American BIA, Bureau of Indian Affairs schools only closed in the 80s. Until then, kids could be and were separated from their parents. So these are raw living issues. They're not something theoretical. Uh, the tribes here are still fighting for legal recognition. Um, a judge that made the decision was senile at the time, but it's still standing. It's called the Bolt decision. It's still standing. So these are very, very real issues. So the, the practice that I have come to and many people I know have come to, though I, I would never claim to speak for everyone or most people, is that we simply leave it alone. We don't call them. We acknowledge their presence. Um, they have seasonal ceremonies where it's quite normal to have spirits just walk through your property and see them. We just wave them on because they're they've they've got a job to do. It's this is part of you know their 
they're on the way to work or to a festival. And we acknowledge them, but we do not summon, we do not dismiss them. Um, we we begin. Oh, if you'd I don't know if I sent this to you, but uh, I'll send you our one ritual, which is a bit later than fall equinox. Uh, we get together. We have a corn maze that's uh, newly cut every year in a new pattern. And we do that as a ritual yearly meditation, plus a potluck using stuff that we've gathered, put together, and made. And uh, we have a short ceremony ahead of time. It's about ten minutes. Um, we try to not stand on ceremony up here. Uh, for one thing, it tends to get incredibly soggy and hard to read under your feet. So, you know, we, we don't stand on it very often. Um, we have moderately stable times for certain seasonal markers, like salmon runs. Uh, the blackberry harvest is a big one for us because we, we, are, we have serious investments in blackberries up here. Um, and so that's, that's one of our markers. Uh, Planting week is one of them, which was this weekend. It, this year is our is our big week to actually begin planting bulbs. Uh, so there was a, a blessing of all the tools uh, over the weekend. Um, one of our, our newer students got her very first uh, Hori Hori. It's a Japanese gardening knife. We, we find them to be the most universally important non-official Druid tool. It's a, uh, if you haven't seen one, it's a sort of a, a somewhat curved blade uh, for digging uh, and cutting. They're magnificent, they're quite durable. Um, and it, it, I wish I had one, but I handed up the last one I had to Elizabeth this weekend. So um, we, uh, we have a local group that meets prior to the, in the before time. One moment, someone is agitating. Come here, you. So it's my giant Pekingese Roo who has to get in on the action. 18 pounds of a solid meatloaf with no fat. Um, so we get together roughly once a month um, and we just start by, by sitting around and, and looking and saying, okay, what is there today that's different? What is the color of the trees? What is the wind? Um, which gets us to tools. And this would be one of our primary sets of tools. This is the big box of 152 crayons. Even if you can't draw it, you can do a, a wash of the sky and the tree colors. You can use them uh, for leaf rubbings. Uh, I find a leaf meditation, especially of a broadleaf, is good because it's analogous to the flow of a river and streams. Uh, you can go from the leaf to transpiration, movement of water, rainfall, and the like. And of course, a seasonal cycle where the tree withdraws its strength from the leaves in order to survive uh, the autumn and winter. Um, we have bears and owls, and eagles, and hawks, um, and coyotes in our neighborhood. So, you know, we can observe this year-round. We can follow when the deer and the bear are, are active. Um, and, and as a, a friend pointed out to me a month ago, hey, Gordon, you really need to talk about our, our annual fire cycle. 
given how impactful it, it is now, I mean, you know, for two summers in a row, everyone had to shut indoors for 10 days. The ash fall was so large, there is not, not even a recording scale for it yet. Um, so the, the idea behind this is a Druidry that is local, embodied, visceral, and studied. So it is something you, you engage with, and you then take this as the raw material of your Awan for your Awan to create art and meaning and stories around it that then feed into your meditations and your ritual work. Um, one of my primary teachers in magic was, a, was an old line spiritualist and a witch in the Georgian church. And so my magic tends to be rooted in the a version of the 1920s and 30s spiritualism that was fairly common to California. Um, it, it works nicely into Druidry because a lot of it involves uh, free perception, uh, divination, and, and light trance. And then, and then we test that information by, by trying to work with it. And if we if something is a clinker, we throw it out and just keep a note of that. And if it works, we keep going. Um, <clears throat> and it it runs out to so many different different possibilities: art, um, music, ritual, finding places to do nature walks. It's a research skill in and of itself up here, um, because while there's a, a long shoreline, there isn't a lot of access to it. Uh, we have lots of old growth and semi-old growth forest within 20 minutes to a four-hour drive. We've got a rainforest, the Ho, H-O-H, is two hours from here, which is magnificent. If you saw <clears throat> the uh, forest that um, many of the Ewok scenes were filmed in, that is most similar to what we've got up here. It's a, it's a diffuse green light that seems to come from nowhere and everywhere. And aside from the drip of water off the trees, it's usually almost silent. And there is no place like it in the world. Um, we've got access to the farthest most point in continental North America on the west, where you can stand on the beach and all of North America is behind you, and there's nothing but the sun setting into the Pacific. This is geologically the weirdest and most complex part of the US. For example, uh, I'm on the peninsula. I'm not on the North American continental plate. We're on a chunk of the Pacific Islands that were far to the uh, west and the south that were subducted hundreds of millions of years ago. Seattle is not part of continental North America. It's part of Baja, California that moved up north. We've got all these active volcanoes. Um, we've got the, the Scablands, which were uh, created, one of the glacial dams broke about 10,000 years ago and rinsed a wall of water at 200 miles an hour down. Just it grabbed everything and just rinsed it down to the uh, the ocean. Um, 
so, so we've, we've got these really, really complex individual little biomes that are all different. Uh, and, and as I told someone, this could what I'm doing could never be a book, not until nature stops, because it's always going to be changing and being a little different. Um, and I've probably never warned you, and I should probably be quiet and let you ask questions now. Well, it was a very interesting and thorough introduction to your journey. So thank you very much. Um, yeah, where do I start to ask a question? There's so many points that you brought up there, so many interesting um, pathways that we could go down. Um, I guess I, I was interested in um, a bit of the, the history of, because um, I'm not really familiar with what the AODA is. Um, and oh. I, I wondered a little bit about, about that because people, sure. most people that listen to my podcast are in Australia. I do have some people that are from the US that listen um, and from other places. Sure. Um, but yeah, a lot of people listening probably don't really know what the AODA is. Sure. Um, and um, maybe you can tell us about that. Absolutely. Um, there were a number of groups that arose at some point between the 1790s and the 1840s that used Druid symbolism. Some of them became insurance societies um, or burial societies. We still have a few of those in the US. Some of them in England at some point picked up or fused with Masonic ideas and groups during the height of the Masonic boom, oh, call it 1870 or thereabout. And a bit later, there was the Masonic Order of Druids, the AMOD, and oh, around 1900, 1910, a US group got a charter for the AMOD. Um, and went about their, their merry way, creating lodges and groups. And they lost contact with the parent lodge. And when they made contact again, the parent lodge basically said, we don't remember you. We don't know who you are. And so the US group simply picked up and did what it was doing. At some point, they, they integrated magical materials that were fairly common to that era. Um, and by, again, this is very fuzzy because we have no documents from this era. Um, <clears throat> it was centered in New England at the time. And in the late 1930s and early 40s, a remarkable woman named Juliet Ashley who was a very early union analyst. Many of the many of the esotericists, by the way, the New York area in the 30s were unions. Um, Israel Regardi, Elsa Barker, who's now forgotten, but used to be a Golden Dawn member and was a spiritualist. <clears throat> um, well, Ashley joined the AMOD. And of course, Masonic orders did not normally admit women. She had a very forceful personality. She got admitted. She became the Grand Arch Druid. So she was the first woman, as far as we can tell, running a Druid group. Now, Juliet Ashley um, had 
long-standing ties to the Edgar Casey Association groups. She was a transmedium and a recorder for a transmedium group. Um, and the, the, the 30s and 40s were a time of esoteric consolidation in the US. A lot of really small groups that did not fold joined other groups together. The AODA ended up inheriting a lot of spiritual alchemical material. It inherited one of the Golden Dawn offshoots. Ashley became the head of one of the offshoots in the US with a charter from Waite. Um, and as was true of most US groups in that time that were esoteric or magical, there was massive pressure to simply not exist beginning in 1946. Um, <clears throat> if, if you've read any of the Jack Parsons biographies, okay, uh, Parsons invented modern rocketry in the US. He was also running an OTO lodge. Um, he lost his security clearance over being in the magical lodge, as did many other people in that era. Uh, you could be prosecuted under, a, or at least banned from your job and from employment uh, under the security acts from 1946 to about the middle 50s. Um, which were still being enforced as late as the 60s. So occult groups, lost members, went underground, disappeared. And so the AODA, while it still continued, was very, very, very small. Um, though it did pick up some members, including in the 50s, a teenager named uh, John Gilbert, who was associated with um, tarot, the American Tarot Association. Um, John Gilbert and a few other people kept the AODA alive for a number of decades. And when John Michael Greer was writing his books on Druidry, he was trying to see what there was in the US because to be honest, no one had really gone looking um, to any great degree until he did. And he encountered the AODA and then discovered that many of them were in the same terror association he was in. And it kind of went from him talking to them and saying, wow, I want to talk to you people, to them saying, we want you to take it over. Um, and so he took it over. He restored many of the correspondence course features, which are part and parcel of uh, late 19th and most 20th century training. It's a good model. Of course, Obad uses it. Um, <clears throat> and when John Michael felt he had made his contributions, he handed it off to me. Um, and most of my contribution has, has been in localizing the Druidry. Uh, so I, I, I think if it doesn't do too much violence to the language, I, I try to think of Druidry's small d. Uh, so the AODA is lively. We owe oh, probably well over 1,300 um, at uh, this point, um, most US esoteric groups tend to be small. Uh, I do not believe there is a single group, possibly with the exception of Obad, 
on the East Coast that has more than 2,000 members. Um, so the AODA is more similar to OBOD than anyone else. Um, what would you say are the differences? Uh, <clears throat> geographic dispersal is one. People in the states are much more spread out that there simply are not enough members to run groups in most places. Um, th this is an endemic problem with all esoteric and fraternal groups right now. Uh, the numbers have been shrinking. The dispersal is so great that lodges are folding all the time. The Oddfellows and the Masons have been losing <clears throat> enough members to have lost so many chapters. In, in the past 20 and 30 years. Um, hence, it has to be much more of a personal practice. Um, and, and this is something I, I started recognizing and seeing in the early 2000s when the large US festivals simply went away, the large regional gatherings by and large, I'm speaking largely about the West Coast, simply disappeared. Um, even in Seattle, we have basically one large, one group that puts on a monthly event that's Our Lady of the Earth and Skies. Um, and that's basically it. That's 50 people a month for this region. I mean, there are a few small covens and standard groups. There's an Obod seed group in Tacoma, uh, and I've attended a, a number of their pub moots. Um, we don't have a pub in Bremerton. We're going to have to make do with a coffee shop. Um, but if there isn't a pub or a coffee shop, it isn't Druidry. I think that's part of the tradition that's important to preserve. Um, <clears throat> the, the other thing I would offer is that there are cognitive, there are, I think there are very real cognitive, spiritual, and attitudinal differences between the New World and the UK or Europe. Um, that there is a sense of rootlessness in a lot of Americans that makes it much more difficult. Uh, as a friend of mine noted, it's, it's a search for roots we don't have. Um, and this is not true generally in England where somebody can say, well, we know my family's been here since 1325 with the same last name and the same 40 mile radius. Um, for those of us whose, whose ancestors have only been over here since 1750 or most of mine since 1880, it's, it, 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 it's, 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 it's jarring in ways. Ross Nichols said something that I think is key. He saw, if I understand it right, and I would really want Philip to correct me on this if I'm wrong. Druidry was an impulse or an expression manifested differently through time. And the best Druidry is not this one, it's going to be the next. The other thing I would offer um, <clears throat> is we had a magnificent community elder that we lost a few years ago. His name was Corby Ingold. He was a friend, he was a student, he was a teacher. Uh, he was an Obad Druid, he was a ceremonial magician, he was a craft elder, 
he had begun studying when he founded a coven in high school in the 1960s. He was uh, the last student of uh, a fairly important but little known witch um, in Wyoming. Uh, and Corby and I were talking about this material four years ago. And I said, so Corby, how long will American Druidries take to develop? And I think he's, he's going to give me a decade or two. He said, well, two to 300 years. Um, I should also mention he was a Sewis medicine singer. He apprenticed for decades with a tribal singer uh, to sing native songs and stories. Um, he did not cross his materials or share things that were inappropriate. I said, two to three centuries. He said, yes, it will take that long. So we have to get started right away. We can't wait. Um, and I, I think he's actually right, because if, if, if you look at how fast our climate is changing, how fast whatever society is going to look like in 100 years, it cannot look like the way it looks today. And the only way to ride that current without it pulling everyone under and drowning them is, is to stay as aware and hopefully integrated to the environment as possible. And, and that means being flexible enough to recognize the changes and adjust. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it, it's not just species loss we're, we're looking at, it's the, the interconnections. The Guardian did an article this morning on why a wild forest, people living in a wild forest have lower rates of infection and disease than people living in a monoculture, monocrop forest. It's a brilliant, it's a brilliant piece. It just went up this morning. You, you, I'll, I'll send you a link if you, if you don't normally pick up The Guardian. Um, and certainly in the US, we're looking within 30 years at depleting completely the uh, Ogallala Reservoir, which is the, the aquifer in the middle of the US that feeds what's called the breadbasket. The Ogallala is being pumped dry, and it took 100,000 years or 50,000 years for that basin to recharge. So, um, you know, we, we've, we've shifted one entire climate zone up here since I've been here, since 1990 or so. Um, uh, we're, we've, we've got, you know, we've got, we've got murder hornets not more than 200 miles from where I live and extending all the way up to the Canadian border. We have Humboldt squid migrating north in the Pacific, which are cute one at a time, but are, you know, a deadly attack pack otherwise. Uh, the waters are warming. We're, we're losing beach property. Tornadoes are getting much more violent. Um, we, I, I think we simply die if we ignore this. And it, it's, um, I think what you were saying before is really true about how there's a necessity to just look at what's happening around us whether it's because we're displaced from, um, you know, the original lens of where the wheel of the years come from or in a response to climate change um, effects. And, you know, the, the book isn't going to tell us what's going to happen around us anymore. No, our knowledge base will inform us and tell us where to look. 
for what's yeah. going on, but but there is so much subtlety and complexity in nature. Uh, I should also say it 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 doesn't have to be driven by fear. Yeah. Fear is a great motivator, but it's a lousy way to drive a car. Um, there is there is beauty in the complexity in the interrelationships uh, that are, are just are not revealed well enough. I think I I actually think that is part of the problem with the way in which science has has presented itself. I, I certainly understand the the desire for a theoretically completely objective uninvolved model, but the 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 complexities and the beauties are not shown um, very often. I mean, there is a relationship between overfeeding animals with antibiotics and a kid getting sick, getting a, an infection that is no longer treatable 50 miles away. These are not necessarily unconnected. Um, by the same token, we've got the cave biology studies now. There's a woman who spent 30 years studying the biomes in a cave. And there are lichens and algae and other living organisms that cannot be cultured anywhere. Well, we can't culture 99% of anything in a lab, but we don't understand the biology of something as simple as a mass of slime on a rock, right? That it's beyond us right now. Uh, and I think one of the lessons in that is is to abandon hubris. Sorry, what does hubris mean? Like, uh, uh, the Greek saw it as a flaw. It's asserting hubris, making bad assumptions and betting the farm on them. Okay. Making assumptions and betting the farm on it. Um, and this is where I think Druidry could shine. If you go back to the 1920s and 30s, you've got poets like Ella Young on the west coast of the U.S. who was staging public Golden Dawn rituals on the beach in Oceana, California for the community for decades. Um, you had the Del Sarte dance troops all over the U.S. and the Western world dancing May Day as ritual with poetry in the 1910s and 20s. Uh, th th that, those community events, that connection has, has gone away. Uh, you know, the, the impulse to create is always there, but, but the way to connect with other people has just fallen by the wayside. Uh, a couple of decades ago, Robert Anton Wilson, uh, now deceased writer, suggested that artists prefigure social change by a decade. And so if you look at the street art of 10 years ago, he said, you're likely to see what's happening now. Uh, and that's one thing occultists, uh, I think Neville Drury mentions this somewhere in his writings, that they capture the mood of the time before anyone else sees it. Uh, to me, 70% of magic is learning how and when to duck. And, and certainly that's a part of the creative process that keeps you going. Um, and, and there is so much work. I mean, it isn't just one thing and there's so much 
nobody can do all of it. I mean, we need we need more people preserving and propagating native stock and native seeds and understanding how to get these things to grow um, without importing tons of chemical fertilizer. You know, we, we need people to monitor bird song and, and bird diversity, uh, to look at, at lichens, to go and look at living stromatolite colonies and measure seaweed growth and, and you know, and basic cloud phenomenon. We, we need all of that. And, and I, I think one way forward for Druids would be to engage with this work and present it in ways that are meaningful. And say, look, even if you want to consider everything we're doing about ritual, except this one thing as completely mad, we're talking about the clouds and how they're important and how by your use of water, you get to change how the clouds work, which means you get to change how we sunburn or our kids will sunburn in 15 years. Uh, as I said, I think of what of wildcrafting druidry as visceral in that this is something you don't live on a computer screen, which is why COVID has made this so difficult. You know, I've got a backyard with a magnificent set of gardens, but not having people over for like our blackberry harvest and bake and, and all, and all the rest of it are just sitting out with a group. There's a park two minutes from me, I've got a non-working orchard behind me and a permanent green space here. I, I recognize how privileged I am, but you just, we, we, we meet in a park or an area next to a park and we just sit there and breathe with the trees, pick up a leaf. What is this? What, what's going on right now from what we can see in here? Um, one of the things I, I put on myself for this is I was a very poor college student my entire occult research and everything budget for a week was roughly $5. That translates to about no, 20 to 25 right now. And so everything in the way of tools had to be cheap and inexpensive. Um, <clears throat> here, of course, this won't mean anything to you there. This is a primary tool. The old farmer's ornament uh, from 1792. Obviously, crayons. <coughs> Reference texts on local geology. Um, <coughs> actually, I've been going through a series from the University of Perth online on Australian geology, and it's just, it, it's fascinating. <coughs> um, I was raised with geology. My dad was the senior research geologist for Gulf Oil, so I inhaled this stuff for 18 years of my life. <clears throat> this, this is a biff. This is a banded iron formation rock. And right here, right here, the layers of rust that fell out of the ocean, these are the footprints of the earliest critters making oxygen. These are the footprints of everything that the modern world depends on for the biosphere. Um, this is a, these are, um, and that, this fish is, oh, two and a half billion years old, yeah. roughly. This, this is a bit of the Isua Formation from Greenland. The Isua Formation, these are the oldest stones you can legitimately acquire. 
These are about 3.8 billion years old. This is history. This is, this is the depth of time that, that you can hold. Um, because you can't separate out life from the Earth. Biology changes the planet. The planet changes what's possible. Um, in the 1960s, the occult community often asserted that we sat at the top of creation and, and sort of were the higher nervous functions for all of the Earth. I, I would suggest that's probably not accurate. I, I, I don't think something the size of a cantaloupe is smart enough to unpack the whole of the world, let alone the entirety of the universe. Uh, you know, so so you, you start where you are with, with what you have. Literally, I mean, what is the weather today? If I if I if I scoop up the soil, what can I tell? What what can this tell me? Mm, you know, it's and, like you, a back to basics kind of way of thinking, <clears throat> like like looking right at the source of things. In um, I, I always love the the stories of the the river source and the the streams coming into the source of the boy as the the senses. <clears throat> Um, and that it's through our our sense connections with the world around us that wisdom really comes from. Yes. I, I know he wasn't much of a historian, but Yoram Arganwi, a, a person whose work I hated 30 years ago, he says so many useful things about the way humans can ethically live. His material was radical. Look, it's the height of the empire. And he and William Blake are standing on Primrose Hill, proclaiming peace to the quarters in Welsh. But that is using a language the Brits don't want anyone, the English don't want anyone to speak. That is as you're calling for peace, calling for wisdom, calling for compassion and respect for life. That, that is as radical as you could get then and unfortunately in ways now. I mean, the Druid's Prayer is considered too politically uh, dangerous, too political in a lot of the U.S. Really? Yes. I mean, even, even saying that, hey, the water in the canals in Naples cleared up, you know, during the first bit of the lockdown where you could see dolphins and clear water, that's too political. And that's absurd, you know. I heard that uh, wasn't true. I'm sorry? Maybe. I heard that that wasn't true, that that was just a... Uh, no, I, I've seen the picture, they're in the Guardian. Okay. And, and elsewhere. Um, but what about the, the Druid's Prayer? Um, it, it calls for peace, it calls for respect. And in, in my case, um, I, ha I happen to be in El Paso, Texas uh, for the memorial service, my martial arts master, Jesse Ventura. Um, and the protests were happening that weekend, and Jesse was your typical Tarascan. That's a that's a Mexican uh, culture from the east of Mexico. He's your typical Tarascan, Tibetan, Mexican American guy. And one of his other students is a federal attorney who was volunteering. Um, and the temperature in the desert at those camps was 107 degrees Fahrenheit. There is no shade. 
nobody in their right mind walks across that desert with a child for any other reason than severe desperation. Um, and, and to not treat the immigrants at the border as human beings simply trying to survive seems to me to run against the plain language of the Druid's prayer. Mm. Um, for, for, the, for, those, for the listeners that don't know the, the parts that are about justice and yes. knowledge and the love of justice and the love of all existences. That, that's yes, the love of all existences. Yeah. Um, El Paso really changed my life. Uh, I, I discovered the martial arts there. Uh, my teacher was Jesse Ventura, who was truly amazing individual who was just infinitely kind, uh, would take anybody of a good heart as a student. Um, and that, and El Paso is one of the greatest multicultural cities, I think, in the world. Um, and, and it taught me a great deal about listening and compassion and getting along. And, and I, I think those are lessons that get lost in, they've gotten lost in the last couple of decades in, in, in so many places with the, the fragmentation that we see because of the internet, the, the physical distancing around COVID has not helped any of this and the massive uncertainty of what the new normal might or might not be. Um, it, it's, it, it's just horrendous. And I, I think as, as human beings, we have to connect, but even more than that, as communities, we, we need to come to understand our, our unique needs and beyond that, what we can offer to other communities. Uh, we, need, we need to be able to be engaged in whatever way our capacities and our, our time allows us. Um, I mean, there's so much work. It can feel overwhelming, but you, you don't have to do everything. Just pick one thing. Just one thing. And if you start from there, that can show you the connections to everything else. Um, I mean, the, just from, from, from a, a plant growing uh, to the way that uh, the sunspot cycle works, there are connections there uh, to, you know, the, the consequences of buying this kind of plastic and not that, just, you know, and as Jack LaLanne, the physical culture expert said, if you cannot do the best thing, do the next best thing. And then don't worry about it, just do it. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I have hopes because I, I see people starting to create some art that is reflective of what's going on. Uh, I just finished watching um, a documentary on Rosalind Norton this week, and I was just utterly amazed by, by her vision of nature and the strength of her artwork. Um, and, and we need more of that. We need more people like, like Rosalind Norton. Um, William Mortensen, who 
was a famous photographer and artist said, powerful art has a command to look in it. Powerful art is not necessarily pretty. It will draw you in, it will grab you because it tells you something primary about the world you did not see before. And, and we need more of that. How do you think um, Druidry plays a role in the creation of art? I think it, well, well it already has. We've had several of the surrealists who are Druids. Uh, the photographer Cogburn was a Druid. <clears throat> um, several other of the women who were associated with the surrealist movement uh, were Druids who created truly inspirational art, which hasn't unfortunately gotten nearly as much press as it, it should have. I, I think it's by taking those elements of a studied visceral realization and perception, and then through meditation and ritual, turning it into artwork tangible forms that will express what that artist is trying to portray. Um, poetry is one. <clears throat> um, something I've been working on for a few years now is a method for teaching spontaneous oral poetry for ritual. Um, I've, on the handouts I gave you, I've, I've got a few of the, the suggestions for that, and I will have a Hopefully, I'll have a module with examples for that by the end of this year that I'm, I'm simply going to put out there for people to use and hopefully criticize and improve on if they find it of value. And if people want to find that sort of thing, um, is there a website they can look at? There will be. Um, okay. uh, I, I've got an email address, and as soon as I can get someone to help me to throw together a website, I will have one. Okay. Um, uh, are you doing that um, just as your own project, or is it part of? No, th this is my this is my own project and the project of, of the Delsart Home Circle. Um, I, I'm getting magnificent assistance from people who've never been in an esoteric group, or people who've been in a group for decades, kind of fell away and have come back. Um, I'm getting really good, hard questions from people who are low vision and deaf around how druidry can work for them and this is it's challenging and it's good um, for making me think much differently about this than maybe i would have 10 years ago um, and, and as i said eventually there's going to be a workbook not a textbook on on how to start from where you are and just basically go through these elements um, here, where is that? Um, of course, I put my notes. Ah, there they are. Um, <clears throat> basically, determining what the stories of your environment are, finding the stories, and then creating things that express these stories. And again, this is, I, I envision this best as a really small group sort of bit. If you've got people scattered a few hundred miles away, it is not likely to work as well. Um, 
and, and to eventually connect and create materials that will result in people being not just happier, but living lives that are connected a bit more to each other and to what's going on in the world. Uh, that's the hope, at least. Yeah, I definitely share the passion for that. That's um, what I wrote about in my book, too, about yeah, taking time to look at what's happening around you and understanding the stories that are right on your doorstep. That, that's the technology that we have not engaged with very much at all. The oldest human technology, I think, is storytelling. The, the ability to pick out information from this mass of, of data and then create a story, test the story, refine the story, teach the story. The difficulty is our culture never teaches how to get to the story. We just teach the established stories mm. and not the process of creation or refining. Uh, the other thing we're big on, uh, are you familiar with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Yeah, I love them. <laughs> Excellent. Um, every author has said roughly, Every single beginning author has 500,000 words they have to get past before the good stuff arrives. We call it the inner Vogon. <laughs> learning, learning how to suppress the inner Vogon and recognize the inner Vogon. We don't really need another endless recitation of the 482 verses of Give Me That Old Time Religion, all with end rhyme. Uh, so, so Robin Skelton, who was the Canadian poet laureate, was a witch, a ghost hunter, a magnificent teacher uh, who left us two beautiful books on the creation of oral poetry. One of them is Spellcraft. The other is The Shapes of Our Singing, which is his master index of verse forms from around the world. Um, neither of these will ever be reprinted, it seems. So... Uh, if you can find one, hold on to it, just photocopy it. Um, I I'm working on creating spontaneous oral poetry for use in ritual. I'm working on a game uh, for a small group to create this. Tell me more about that. What, what is spontaneous oral poetry? Um, oral po cultures that are pre-literate or non-literate don't memorize verbatim. When they sing a song, when they tell a traditional song, for example, they're reading the room in terms of the pacing, the phrasing, and the version of the story they're telling. Mm -hmm. um, when Perry and Lord, who wrote a book on the traditional singers of Bosnia <clears throat> in the 1930s, would interview a singer, they would record him on a wire recorder. And let's say the performance came in at 35 minutes. Well, the same person would do what they called the same story a week later, and it would be an hour and a half. And you know, so you've got a 35-minute recording and an hour and a half recording, and the singer has listened to both of them, and he says, no, they're actually exactly the same. And the details are different. They, they did not... They did not exactly, they did not use rote memory. They worked with phrases. They would have a skeleton of a story. 
that they will adopt, adapt, and modify to that specific performance. And from the stock of phrases that have all these associations, they would create something that is an original while still in a tradition. Um, if you look at the Irish materials, you'll have these magical battles. And, and these are not dissimilar from uh, the argument of the two women that we have in Sumerian. Uh, you've got basically the equivalent of magical rap battles going on in, in all oral cultures. Um, it's spontaneous, it's improvised. Uh, it, I think that it is what the Irish are referring to when they talk about the dark speech. It, it's a bit like trying to read Yeats or James Joyce without a really comprehensive index of what they meant by their illusions. Yeah. Uh, and, and to an extent, this is why I think the traditional training time of a druid was said to be 21 years. It, it took this long to get all these associations, <clears throat> the plants, the animals, the interrelations, the stories. For example, let's take the bee. All right. Bee is connected to honey. Honey is connected, obviously, to wax. Bees follow the sun. They are connected to the sun. There's an association of bears with them. So it's so. The word bee is one thing, but the concept of how a bee relates to its environment within a human experience is not the same thing. It's much bigger. Uh, and you can work from this to create phrases that, that allude to the bee in the specific context you need for, say, magic. Um, Collections of correspondences. Yes. Yes, yeah. but, but they're not, but it's not a table, of correspondence. No. It's, it's fluid. The table comes later. The table of correspondences are concretizations mm. of much earlier materials. There's a limit, uh, a limitation that comes with putting things into text that the oral cultures have so much more opportunities for expansiveness <clears throat> than really just, you know, going yes. to any point. And because yeah. the West for so long has bought into the, the worship of the book. And I'm, I'm certainly guilty of this myself. I, I love primary sources. I love, you know, multiple primary sources on a topic is where I'll always go first. Um, Socrates thought writing was the death of learning. And, and to an extent, this, this is true. Um, putting something in writing grants it an authority it would not otherwise have. Now, now that said, I'm not, I'm not talking about, let alone advocating an anti-intellectual druidry. That this isn't a random free-for-all. It, it, it's, okay, we're testing something. But our, our mode of creation and expression, I, I Writing is a very recent phenomenon in human history. I mean, speech goes back arguably between 200,000 and 2 million years. Okay, Neanderthals spoke, so we're looking at 
700,000 to 2 million, um, probably. Speech is our primary mode. Speech of this sort, uh, where the words, you know, the ensuite, the the flowing torrential explosion of words going with concepts that um, you see in the Irish material after they would isolate for three days in the dark huts wrapped in the tar fish in, in the bull's hide, um, being dragged into the light, that bang, that spontaneous but trained um, explosion of concepts, um, which is why in traditional spiritualism, you always have a recorder. You have, you have your circle, you have your medium, and you have your recorder, whose job it is to record and report that which was said. Because if you, you obviously can't have the medium do it, and you can't have the circle do it. They're doing other things. Um, and, and I think because this connects at such a deep level with language that is symbolic and spontaneous, even though it's maddeningly imprecise in ways it gets us closer to the expression if we're not having it ourselves, if it has to be mediated by someone. Mm. Same reason. Art. There's meaning that comes from uh, the, the wholeness as well of a, an oral culture. And yes. It's not just about the words that are said, it's about who it's being said to and what context you're in. Yes. And the, you know, the memory keys are just, oh, I'm in that place and, and that time gets remembered because of the stories that were told and or the, 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 the music that was in the background or the, um, you know, the poetic meter that it was spoken in and the, the tone. Oh, yes. So all these things are, are, like you were saying, like we're, our oral culture, like we, we've evolved for that, like we're made for that. Our brains are set up to, you know, work in the oral culture, not, not textual culture. Yes. So, yeah. Exactly. And uh, the surrealists were all about this. Uh, they were all about automatic drawing and, and automatic writing, which again, have the same caveats about the inner Vogon. It's about getting past your own internal noise to information. How would you define the inner Vogon? This, I mean, uh, I the inner, the inner yeah, Vogon would be yeah. that would be that part of the inside that writes bad poetry. <laughs> and it is going to let the world know about it. Yeah. Uh, controlling the inner Vogon. Yeah. Actually, you know in some way, is that what you... Well, you, you indulge it to the point where you get past it. You exhaust it. Right, yeah. Hmm. But preferably not in public. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> or that's what YouTube is for, possibly. I'm not certain. Um, <laughs> Uh, but but once you get past that, it's like all artists have a learning curve, and they recognize this. There are very few that grab their first box of watercolor and are put up in a show five days later, you know, at the the Met or wherever. Um, yeah. So there's getting there's getting that not just the creative, but the craft of doing it, the craft of working with the tools, including yourself, right? To the point where you're, it's not just creativity, it is a focused creativity that is an expression of something powerful. Um, I mean, Nguyen, Ross was, was a fine, was a, was a 
uh, I'm not sure if you'd call him a miniaturist. He was, he was a painter who worked on a really small scale and he wrote poetry <clears throat> and, and those were his modes of expression. And but the, what I truly loved about Ovad was I saw all these modes of expression being encouraged and, and I saw people talking to each other and they weren't afraid to create ritual art. Because at least in the States, that is a high bar um, internally for an awful lot of people to say, I am now going to take a, a run over the next three years at creating ritual art that will say something meaningful. Because gods know we have enough Barbie doll goddesses everywhere in, in the magical community. We have so many Barbie and Ken goddesses that are not reflective of any of the attributes of the deities or anything else. Um, because it's easy, it's cheap, everyone knows how to do it, but it, it's almost like it's been drained of power. What do you mean by that? Like um, people that are sort of externally playing the part but don't necessarily have the substance behind um, them? Is that what you're getting at? Or? I, I was more referring to the available art. If, if for example, you look for an image of Lilith, mm. you're going to see a white chick, probably about 25 years old, you know, you're not going to see this powerful figure that should be scary. Deity and the kami, the spirits capable of communication uh, and existence who may or may not have a conventional body, are powerful. They're threatening. A tornado is threatening. Crashing waves are threatening. A pine forest is threatening if you don't understand it. And, and that, that sense of the primacy of what it is is missing from so much of, of what passes as magical art. You know, it's simply pretty. Oh, I see. It's the difference between, it's the difference between the descriptions of, say, of Kali and a Mr. Potato Head, right? They're both dark colored figures. One is threatening because the image embodies the, the multiple expressions of, of what she is, and yet the Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head doll doesn't. Sorry if that's a poor analogy. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure what you mean. I'm sorry? I'm not, I'm not sure I'm getting what you're uh, saying. Okay, let me try this again. Um, powerful artwork is scary because encountering the supernal is scary. Mm. If the art claims to represent the supernal and it is simply pretty and nice and goes on a shelf, it's not expressing the thing. Mm. I think there's um, also perhaps that depth of symbolism and those, you know, correspondences that we were talking about before that, that is, is in art that really has that depth of meaning and, and that striking emotion, I think, when you when you see it. Um, like like Rosalind Norton's yeah. art, perhaps it has those, you know, different layers of faces and, and the sense of spirit visions um, that she had in her artwork, but, that there's a, a real sense of it, it not just being... Um, 
shallow, I suppose. There's, there's a depth of understanding that's being presented there. And it's complex. Yeah. Okay. It's it's not just one moment. It's it's fluid. It's something that's moving, to me. And it's it's impossible to capture in one go. But she made her best effort, and she shows it as fluid. Mm. It, it's it's almost like um, a series of overlaps of experiences and realities. Um, deity forms were almost never simple. They were. I am this, and I am that, and I am this other thing, and I am yet this other thing, and this other thing. <clears throat> uh, the, the, the classicists all recognized deities were mutable and could show up in any form they wanted. If, if Hecate wanted to show up as a potted plant, she could, but it does not mean Kali was a potted plant. Mm. You see, it, it's simply that manifestation of the second that second that is not the totality of the of of, of what she is um and and you you can find this even in something as supposedly simple as a tree um just because of the nature of our vision we don't see most of what a tree is a, a tree is not just a single living thing it it provides and nurtures an entire colony of life mm. at its roots. It communicates. Uh, the, the tops of trees are a, a part of biology and the, the wild we don't really understand fully. Um, there are some projects in the Amazon where they put people up on really high scaffolds to, you know, because no one's ever thought to look right at the top of a tree. Um, the surfaces of trees support a generally invisible biome they support fungi and multiple other organisms in addition to whatever insects are there. Um, it's this very complex dance of life. Yes, I'm, I'm using that deliberate reference to Ovad Ludasak camp mornings. Um, that, that's going on and it connects to all the trees around it. And they in turn connect to the trees on the edge of that biome, which connect to the water underneath, all of which contain multiple types of bacteria and viruses that we've never actually even examined in more than a cursory way. Um, um, it's interesting how what you're saying is that it's actually making me see the connection between the, um, the integrated aspects of the environment and the way that, um, you, know, you know, we are not just separate from the environment. We're part of nature, of course, because we're breathing air, we're standing on the ground, we're eating food, just as much as the tree is part of its ecosystem of mycelium under the ground and the, um, you know, and the mosses and the little insects that are living in the bark and everything. Like yeah. everything, not, nothing is in, is, it can be so isolated. No. Um, and, and I think it relates, it, I find it interesting how it relates to the text based traditions, it's sort of almost an attempt to isolate an idea by putting it in text and making it concrete and having it separate from everything else. Whereas there's, you know, there, there's real value in that oral experience where everything's mm -hmm. much more integrated and much more natural, I think, as a, yes. as a consequence. We ourselves, uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a fairly new term, a holobiont. We're a holobiont. While we're human, we 
would, would literally fall over and die in a couple of minutes without everything that's inside us that is not human. Um, we are not just integrated into the environment. We ourselves have our own environment that will kill us if it isn't sufficiently healthy. Um, and, and, you know, and, and these are things that we have to think about on a planet of diminishing resources on, you know, the, the term right livelihood is, is, has been part of the, uh, of the Dhamma in Buddhism for a long time. And I, I think it's always been a good question to examine. Um, and again, going back to Jacqueline, Wayne, if you can't do the best thing, do the next best thing. And then just accept that in the position you have, that is what you can do. The, the worst thing is deciding it's all too complex and giving up. Yeah, and that's I've... also the dullest answer because it doesn't produce art or yeah. joy or connection. I've, I've been really liking the term just doing better lately um, in terms of ethical action on, on various levels about um, our relationship with Indigenous cultures in a colonised land or our relationship with, yes. with ethics on many different levels so about the environment or, you know, but, but whatever, whatever it is, we can accept, uh, you know, we may have made mistakes, there's been a, a, you know, a past or even a present of, of um, mm -hmm. trauma, um, but how can I do better today? How can I do a little bit better? Yes. And um, that's, yeah, that's where I've been focusing. Yeah, abs absolutely. Um, the, the, there are a number of activist communities up here around social justice. And generally, one of the things I do, and a number of the people I know do, is we take our cue from what the communities that are most concerned about this say. We take our lead from them uh, and, and, and put our resources there uh, without without once even thinking that we are competent or that they want us to speak for them or about them. We just show up, you, you, you offer the support, you do your best, and you realize that, that these, are these are problems that will not be solved in a month, a week, or a lifetime. Um, I mean, a lot of the inequalities that we see go back five, 6,000 years. And it's going to take, hopefully not that long, but it's going to take time to have a rethink on what's desirable. Um, I mean, the ancients weren't necessarily any better. They cut down entire forests. Uh, they overharvested plants. You know, they made all sorts of mistakes that led to the end of those civilizations or made those areas barren. And, and there are lessons there um, to be learned on doing better. Mm. You know, there, there, okay, outs, I think outside of integer mathematics, there is no perfection. Uh, as both Philip and uh, the senior pastor of Unity Church said, um, look for holy wholeness. Look for wholeness. Go for wholeness. Don't go for, for, for perfection because you'll never get there. Yeah. And and that's you know, that's a good one to keep in mind. Uh, 
is you learn more from mistakes than successes. Yeah. So what, what are you doing at the moment? What's your, I, I mean, you were saying before, we, we can't do everything all at once. There's right. Task. So where, where are you focusing your I, work at the moment? I support the immigrant community here. Uh, this region has been a hotbed of Nazi and neo-Nazi and white supremacist actions for a long time. Um, I support the immigrant community as I can, the local food bank. Uh, we have an immense homelessness problem here. And, and I, I do what I can towards that. Um, in, in terms of my in terms of my own practice, besides meditation, and when it's warm enough walking, it, it's far too cold right now to walk. Um, I, I take photography as my meditation. Um, film photography, actually. Uh, this is a second of one of my prints. <clears throat> uh, this is a, tr a fallen or a nurse tree in the Fauntleroy Creek watershed in West Seattle. Uh, we're very excited because this is a watershed where the salmon have come back in the last five years. Uh, I photograph trees, I photograph plants. Um, I'm working on ritual art. I, I have a, a long form project on, on ritual art I'm doing. Uh, of course, the Del Sart Home Circle that we hope sometime in middle to late June, we will be meeting in person again. It depends <clears throat> It depends on the rate of reinfection and when the lockdown phases change here, which we won't know yet for a while. Um, and I get together hopefully in person with uh, some of my friends next month. And I, I just hope to keep on working on the oral poetry, sharing methodologies, uh, and a workbook on finding your own druidries and and i hope that and i hope that people will find some of it useful hate others and find something better and hopefully share that out uh and and i i think that's i really think that that's a good methodology for moving forward um yeah that sounds really great and I've, I've got, uh, I, please, if you find the notes of, of, of use or interest, please distribute them. Uh, there are three YouTube channels I've been curating. Something I'm looking for are songs of place and of bodies of water, of a place. Uh, I've got one, one YouTube playlist of that. Um, uh, there are a couple, of course, there's some songs about the Mississippi. There are songs about the Columbia River up here. And, and I assume every place has something like that. And that's important because those, those stories tell us something, not just about the place, but the interaction those people had or have with it. Um, and, and, and I think that's important because the, the death of memory, of place, of song, and of language is, is the death of experience. Um, we lose a language a year roughly in the world right now, and that's accelerating. All those stories, all those jokes, all that information, all that knowledge on how to get along is passing away. But we know what happens if you only put one kind of plant in a field. 
it, it's too susceptible to to massive damage and loss. Mm. Yeah, so. Yeah, diversity is nourishing. Yes, absolutely. Mm. I, I, I would hope to see Druidry be a place or at least an expression of many campfires, many stories, and many people going between the campfires. Mm. so to speak I that that's my hope mm. yeah localized and and connected connected yeah <laughs> yes totally yeah that's great um it's been really interesting to talk to you today thank you so much well thank you <laughs> be well keep writing keep sharing it's important yeah, I'm actually some of the things that we talked about today will probably help me uh, work on my writing a bit today. <laughs> so that's Thank great. You. I look <laughs> forward to seeing it. Take yeah. care. Yeah, you too.